Hey, Sean, this essay, Learning in Wartime, how would you summarize it in one sentence? In a single sentence, I would say, okay, one sentence, um, probably even when the world is going to hell around you, you need to do the important things that make you human. I love it. Having no preparation for that question, Jordan, thank you very much. That was That's how I would <laughs> summarize this incredibly... Tw- tight 12-page essay by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I think it works. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser-known works. Join us this season as we are exploring essays from Lewis that we think speak to our world today. going on in Ukraine. Did you hear about this? You know, I although I try to avoid the news as much as humanly possible, I may have seen or heard something about that, yes. Yeah, uh, for those of you listening in the future, which would be all of you, I guess, because this isn't live, uh, we're recording this in late March of 2022, and the Russia-Ukraine war is, what, a month in? Something like that? Yeah, if that, yep. You know what's something crazy is... I have been thinking, not this week, but last week, I was thinking all week about how I could go and join the fight. Wow. Yeah. And that's not, I've never thought about joining the army before. And for some reason, I couldn't get it off my mind all week. I was thinking, I couldn't think of a reason not to go. That was the weird part. Oh, that's fascinating. I have I have talked to a few people who have been thinking that way, and and of course, um, lots and lots of people who have contributed to the war effort, not necessarily by going, but we did know some who uh, Canadians who went to go fight with Kurds in and uh, during the Syrian conflict. Oh, really? Yeah, but that was I think a little more rare. I have heard other people say the same thing that you did that they're thinking about going to fight in Ukraine. Yeah, and it's just a strange thing. I I mean, ultimately. I've decided not to go. I don't even know where I would sign up to go. I don't know how to do that. But what I realized as I was like, where, where are these thoughts coming from? For myself, I realized that I'm, so right now I'm doing construction and mostly just painting all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm enjoying it. But when there's this war going on, I found that painting plywood for 40 hours a week somehow seems very trivial. Hmm. And so I think that's where these thoughts were coming from, where I'm like, there's this war going on. There's a noble thing I could be doing. And I'm here painting plywood uh, because I need the money. Right. I mean, we all need money to live, but you don't understand. It's like, I was trying to justify (laughs) what I was doing for my job when there's this war going on that I could be a part of and going, should I be a part of like, is it my duty um, to go? Man, that's fascinating, especially because, um, you know, I can see where that would arise from because nobody makes a movie about the guy who didn't go to World War II and just decided to paint houses instead. <laughs> that's true. That's you know, true. We, we, we tend to focus on the people who, or it's not like, you know, Lord of the Rings. Uh, they're just like, the whole book is just about 
the Shire during that time, and and everybody right. else is overseas or not overseas, but uh, on their way to Mordor. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. That might would that be interesting? Is there some interest there? I doubt it. Uh, you know what? Based on the fact that specifically with Lord of the Rings, I think if if Tolkien wrote it, somebody will read it. That's true. I mean, <laughs> from what I've heard, the Silmarillion is maybe that level of uh, trivial, yeah. shall we say. Just yeah. why do we need to know this? But it's there and people love it. Um, but Sean, thinking about that, I want to put a question to you, which is, um, I mean, you're the president of a Bible college. Uh-huh. And with all these seemingly extreme things going on in the world um, and things that make, I mean, they're presenting themselves as really urgent and needing to be addressed. Um, Not just like on the post end of COVID and with this war going on, uh, there's social justice stuff um, that really needs to be addressed. And especially from a Christian point of view, I guess the the question to you would be the question that Lewis starts this um, essay off with. And the one that, I mean, he's writing to address this question, which is with all that going on in the world, how do you justify students coming to learn for even an eight month period, um, setting everything aside to actually really focus and spending all their time and energy on learning? And maybe even in your case, because it's a Bible college, learning things about spiritual and religious matters. Um, How would you and or Lewis respond to that sort of question yeah since my my answer is considerably um less articulate than lewis's would be let me let me give you mine first and then nimi will will swivel into learning in wartime but uh, essentially i would say that we need people to be disciples of jesus and by that i would just i would point back to matthew 28 um, verses 18 to 20 commonly called the great commission and he says you know go make disciples and he goes and he says what does that look like he doesn't say that i guess he kind of unpacks that and he says teaching them to observe all that i've commanded you and so i just i, th- I feel like that observation or or that doing what jesus has commanded us to do um, undoes so many of the the wrongs the barriers to human thriving in this world, Uh, you know, from war to issues within a pandemic, I I feel like a church that is in sync with who Jesus is, is a church that is bringing God's solutions to to the world. Um, And and so that's not the only reason, Um, but Lewis Lewis takes us in a much better trajectory. So uh, let me just give you the the um, the nutshell version of learning in wartime, and then let's talk about it, Jordan. Yeah, sounds good. he, he delivers this, um, this sermon, uh, is what it is, in, in essay form, in 1939. So, uh, you know, most people with even just a really cursory understanding of history would, would know, okay, so, you know, the UK, um, Great Britain has been uh, in conflict with Germany already, but it's in 1939 now. Finally, World War II is in full swing for, for Europe. They've, the, the Nazi war machine has been exposed. And he's speaking to students at Oxford, like you already mentioned, um, and he's fundamentally asking the question, the question of, of the essay is, how can we continue as students in the face of war? Like you just said, so many other important things are going on in the world. And he throws the question back and he says, well, if we're Christians, um, how can we continue on as students or as, you know, in your case, a painter, or in my case, 
you know, uh, the president of a Bible college in the face of people going to hell. You know, if there's if there's eternal consequences that are being faced right now by the way that people live their lives, how can we do anything else? And Lewis makes this argument that um, uh, humankind is always kind of staring adversity and suffering and, and and tragedy and crisis in the face. You know, he says if we if we waited to get started on the other things that make up life, beauty, intellect, um, art, relationships, etc., we would never get started. Um, if we were waiting for safety, we would never have a, a chance to to pursue those other things that make us so human. Uh, then he dives into a big conversation on on vocation and how all vocations can glorify God, and and how they should be pursued again regardless of whether they feel like the most important thing per se. And then toward the end, he offers three antidotes for getting overwhelmed by the urgency of the war and really counsels people um, not to get absorbed by it. So I think, you know, again, you've, you've already alluded to this, but, but the timing of this, reading this for me was just so stimulating coming off of COVID. Uh, and yeah, the war in Ukraine is really important. Um, but I, I wish that I would have read Learning in Wartime yeah. two years ago. I, so I was in seminary when COVID started. And uh, my small group leader, um, well, he was also one of my professors. His name's uh, Dr. Wes Hill. He, he had our group read this essay right at the beginning of COVID. And it was... Wow. Uh, yeah, it was so helpful at that time because that was when COVID was this big question mark and we didn't know what was going to happen. And it felt a little, it, it was the closest thing to war that I've ever experienced, right? Like these lockdowns and grocery shelves are empty and those first couple of weeks. And the question of like, why should I be getting up at 6.30 to read Augustine or study my Greek uh, verbs when all this is going on was a legitimate question. pose a question to you that Lewis poses at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the essay. Um, sure. And, and you, you being in seminary, I think it's just perfect. Uh, and uh, something that I would say that probably is a little more common in the circles that I run in the church circles that I run in maybe than yours. I don't know. I'm speculating, but, mm-hmm. but even those things that you mentioned, so you're, you're reading Augustine and you're, you're studying Greek, you know, people I feel like carry so much more of a, of a pragmatic we got to get people saved. And I don't think it's quite as, as, as vulgar as just fire insurance kind of evangelism that goes on. But even the question for you as, as somebody who went to seminary, because, um, you know, Lewis says, yeah, the, the question about war is unimportant. But he says, quote, every Christian who comes to university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively irrelevant. He says, um, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are at every moment advancing either to heaven or hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as, and then he lists a a bunch of kind of pursuits. So 
why why do we pursue these things? What do you think? Um, why do we pursue normal daily life when it seems like people are in both spiritual and practical crisis? Yeah. Um, okay. Let me say a couple of things before I answer the question. And you're going to have to remind me of what the question was by the time I get around to answering it. No problem. It. But first of all, that quote you just read about um, creatures who are at every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell. Lewis, um, there's a great short book he wrote called The Great Divorce that expands on that idea of creatures who are either advancing to heaven or to hell. And if you haven't read it, go read it. Um, I mean, this is the lesser known Lewis podcast. So someone who's doing the more known Lewis podcast can cover the great divorce. Um, <laughs> and then actually there, he talks more about that in this essay called the weight of glory, which we're going to cover soon. I just wanted to say, I'm very excited to get there. Cause it's, it's such an amazing idea to, to think about. And, um, I just want to sow the seeds for that, which is upcoming. The second thing I want to say is that the background that you're describing, um, uh, of the churches that you come from are, I mean, churches that I've come from as well. And, um, I, yeah, I just want to affirm that impulse to evangelize huh. because, um, Lewis makes a point that the first big point he makes in this essay is war is not a new, um, no, he says the, the urgency of war should not be new to Christians yeah. because we are always living in urgent times because the threat of going to hell is a very real, it, there's a, there's a very real urgency to that for every human being. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of traditions who don't recognize that or who have, who, who just kind of mute that they put that on mute. They don't think about it. And evangelism slides to the, to the back burner because of it. Oh, totally. And, and even 80 years ago, he, he's kind of tongue in cheek about this, you know, like he, mm -hmm. he makes, yeah. he makes a sorry, not sorry kind of remark about bringing hell up and, and how it's not yeah. popular to talk about even at that time. Yeah. Which it was, it was really cool the way he does that. And he just, he says, look, if you don't believe in hell, why are we even in church right now? Yeah. Like, why would you be here? Um, and so, yeah, I just want to affirm that that impulse is really excellent. What I love about Lewis um, is that he brings in this fullness and this depth in this essay and in all of his writings to show that actually there's more, there's value and, and spiritual depth to doing things other than evangelism. Evangelism is so important, but it's not the only important way of us advancing towards God in our relationship with him. And it's not the only important thing we can do to help others advance in their relationship with God. And that's what this essay is about. So to come back to your question, <laughs> which uh, again was, what was it? Well, basically why seminary, you know, you, you answered the one side of it, right. why seminary, if you could, you know, in, instead of just going out and doing evangelism, like why go into that yeah. depth? You know, there's a lot of non-essentials that we learn in Bible college sure. or seminary. But then the other side of it being why seminary when you could have gone out and, you know, been a doctor or a soldier or, mm -hmm. or, or something that's like feels more life and death every day. I think the short answer would be for me, I wouldn't be able to evangelize to the people I'm supposed to evangelize to 
unless I had gone to seminary. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that there are people out there who are educated and would not would not turn themselves to the Lord if you came up to them on a street and said, hey, can I pray for you? Or, hey, have you, uh, do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and L- Lewis says in this essay, he points this out, and he says it somewhere else too. I think maybe in another essay that perhaps we'll cover in the future, but yeah, he says these things, and he's about to list some things, will exist outside the church, whether they exist inside it or not. And then, so yeah, this is a quote. He says, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Yeah. Just to say, do you know what? Honestly, you're, you're read my notes here. Mm. I, that was, that was that whole section there where he discusses that might've been the, the takeaway of the, the essay for me. Oh, really? Um, where he says, you know, if we don't train ourselves to think rationally, then we're just going to think irrationally. If we don't read good books, yeah, uh, we're just going to read bad books. And, and of course, you know, I think we could, we could, again, 80 years after this, this, uh, sermon was delivered, we could, um, fill that with a bunch of other kind of categories. You know, if we, mm-hmm. especially the way that we spend our time, if I don't, if I don't fill my time doing meaningful things, I will fill my time doing meaningless things. So Lewis gives this analogy and it's basically this. He says, if we were to live, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if we're, if you were to live on a coast, like by the sea, maybe it would be your duty. Then it would be responsible for you to learn how to save people who are in danger of drowning. Mm -hmm. But then he says, but if you thought of nothing else and stopped doing everything and just sat on the beach or went out on a boat 24 seven looking for drowning people and you wouldn't give up until you were assured that every last human soul would never drown like that. That's overkill. I think what's the word he says? He says they're crazy or they're monomaniac. He uses a word. Yeah. Monomaniac. He calls them. Yeah. Which is, I feel like something we don't say enough of today. Yeah. Which I guess just means you're crazy about one thing. Monomaniac. Yeah. Um, And I love this quote. He says, the rescue of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. What do you think about that? Oh, well, and again, this is why Lewis is, is worth talking about decades after the fact, because that is just actually so clarifying. Because I I feel like um, I've had conversations recently with, uh, with relatives who have, who have, suddenly become very political. Yeah. You know, they, they weren't, um, you know, they're voters, they're involved, they're informed voters even. Mm -hmm. But now all of a sudden, like every show that they're watching, every post that they see on, on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever, um, every conversation they have at coffee is, is just dripping with this. 
And, um, and there was a subtle change that went on there that I, I, I really had trouble parsing out in my own mind and, and just wondering what to do with. And I think part of it is that some of the causes, um, be they political, social, whatever, that, that are presented to us in the world right now are causes that may be even worth dying for, but they're not worth living for. Yep. Which is to say, we cannot give ourselves up to them. We cannot give our being up to them. Even if there was maybe a moment where we would be called on, where we would we would need to drop other things to to out of a sense of duty or responsibility, um, really engage in them. So yeah, just right under what you were reading, Jordan, something something that struck me was him saying, um, he this is Lewis again, quote, he who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which of all things most emphatically belongs to God himself. Yeah, just, I, I loved that um, because I, I struggled with how to respond to people who are living for, who are living that monomaniac life. Yeah. You know that he talks about the, the, the drown or the man trying to save drowning from and, and to say, you know, cause, cause usually it's an important cause. You know, we've started all this off by discussing the war in Ukraine or COVID. Those are, those should get a lot of our attention, but I don't know that COVID deserves my life. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe in the sense of, um, if you could die for someone or die for the sake of others, like it could take, it, it deserves dying for, is he saying but not living for like dedicating your life to it. Yeah. Your waking hours, which is not even him saying that he, you, you shouldn't choose a vocation that you would then spend your life on this given thing. Um, he, he does this really great kind of contrast between how religion, true religion, you know, I use that word, not in a, not in a negative sense, but our spirituality, mm-hmm. our faith yeah. Um, can encompass our whole life, but a crisis like war um, cannot. And again, so he's he's. We'll link it back to the analogy, the life saving analogy that you brought up. Um, and I was just thinking about this: how how um, ideology about war, again about COVID or about a cause, um, will eventually overwhelm and snuff out all of the smaller thing. And I say smaller, but but critically important other aspects of life. You know, they start to take over your relationships. They start to take over um, your imagination, which I think um, is a big part of all this. How, where's your imagination at in this whole this whole thing? Um, and that and that we even almost start to feel guilty when when our full attention, our will, isn't being absorbed by that thing anymore. Um, you know, religion can permeate all those things and actually enhance them. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when we have a vocational sense, you know, we were talking about COVID. Let's say, you know, somebody who's a shut-in because of the disease, you know, because of the pandemic, they are, uh, you know, on on social media all the time, on the news agencies all the time, and and learning, just being completely absorbed by this is actually in a really different category than a virologist who's working on treatments for or prevent um, preventative measures for the disease. Right, yeah. One one can really please God, and I think the other thing is idolatrous. Yeah. Okay. So, Sean, one thing you said there was you you pointed out how Lewis says that uh, war shouldn't take up the whole of your life, uh-huh. but that re- religion, um, on the one hand, he says it actually must take up the whole of your life because God's claim is is total. 
uh, and you can either refuse it if you want. Um, but if you're going to accept it, his, his call on you takes up the whole of your life. So that, again, that impulse of what are we doing? We, we, we should, if we're going to follow Jesus, it's got to take up the whole of our lives. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. What I like about what Lewis brings in here is that he, he says that it can't take up the whole of your life basically at the exclusion of natural activities. Yeah. And then kind of in defense of that, um, he quotes a bunch of stuff from scripture or refers to it anyway. He says like, Paul tells people to get on with the, their jobs. He actually tells people to stay at the job that they had when they got saved. Yeah. Um, and then there's like, he assumes that Christians are going to dinner parties, even dinner parties hosted by pagans. He refers to Jesus uh, attending a wedding and providing wine and then he points out that under the church, the especially in the early centuries, like the arts flourished and learning flourished. That's where universities sprung out of was the church. Yeah. And he says, of course, it's this way, because in First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Of course, he's quoting the King James there. But there's another a similar verse in Colossians chapter three, where Paul says, whatever you do work at it with all your heart as for the Lord, not for men. Yeah. Well, and so it's just this idea of what are you doing and are you doing it to the glory of God as for the Lord? Yeah. I'm, I'm working on that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm writing a very, a fairly large research paper on work and, and vocation uh, throughout, you know, from a couple of different angles, like, so, but basically just saying, how does this work out for, for believers? And, uh, and I, w- I've been surprised over the last few weeks as I've been working on this paper to see how much ordinary everyday work really matters to the Lord. I would have said it before. And I was, I would have been exposed to say like brother Lawrence and the whole thing where it's like, you can practice the presence of God wherever you are and whatever you're doing. And I would have never said to somebody who's say working at Tim Hortons, yeah, you know that you have a you have a less important job than me. I don't think that I believed that in in the heart of my own heart, but when it came to myself, mm-hmm. um, I I felt like I had um, I had to pursue you know the most important job, and that and that maybe you know the the needs of everyday life, even something as mundane as as chores in your house, are actually getting in the way of the kind of neo monastic you know, revivalist life that I wish that I was living. Totally. And and I feel like actually, you know, the biblical message, and, and Lewis makes this argument through this essay, flies in the face of that. That's just wrong. That, um, that ordinary things can be really valuable. Yeah, he says that, um, he says, look, all our natural acts will be accepted if offered to God. Yeah. And then actually they'll be sinful if they're not. And then he makes the point that, Christianity does not simply replace our natural life and substitute a new one. And rather, he says it, it basically, it makes use of the natural materials and our natural activities towards supernatural ends. Oh, so good. And it, re- it reminds me of first um, Timothy chapter four, where again, Paul says for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
Yeah. Which makes me think of this thing I heard from a guy named Rob Bell, which is that <laughs> everything is spiritual. <laughs> that wasn't a quote that I was expecting to come up in this in this conversation. <laughs> do you think it's true or do you think there's any caveats in there? Well, I love that that is a rhetorical device that, that just pulls it in. Here's my caveat. Here's my caveat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's right that everything is spiritual, but not every spiritual thing is of God. Um, I, I would say that, um, so again, okay, I'll, I'll, there was a theologian, uh, a guy named Wayne Grudem. I was watching a watching a, a lecture that he did on the value of work, and he made the argument that the price of something determines its value. Okay. Um, and which he, he, it's a little bit more nuanced than what I'm about to present. So just to be fair to Grudem, but he, he says, you know, if somebody takes a, a piece of cloth, they buy it for $2 and he turns it into a t-shirt and they send it, sell it for $15. Then, then that's an amazing kind of miraculous thing because they have created more value in the world. Um, hmm. and, and other people are measuring that value based on how much money they'll give for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's careful to point out that that even if say you're, you know, let's say you're, you're just a just, well, there I go doing it. That's terrible. But let's say you're a stay at home father. Uh, the work that you do with your children, you're not getting paid for it, but is obviously of, of great value. You know, you're creating value in the world. Um, what he didn't, you know, I, I, what I thought of when he talked about the price analogy um, was actually prostitution. Hmm. And, and so where he says, you know, like, and because they were talking about the service industry, and how we tip uh, a waiter or a waitress, we tip a server to show value to the service that they rendered us over a meal. Okay. And I was thinking about like if if our and this is getting away from Lewis just a little bit, but if if our the value that we've created the wor- for the world is is just measured in, in monetary numbers, then there's there's lots of things I could think of. You know, being selling illicit drugs does not create value for the world. And yet it generates a ton mm, of money. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned the sex trade, um, human trafficking in general. So, you know, when you say everything is spiritual, I, I think there's an underlying truth to that. Yep. Um, but that, you know, we, we can't use that to justify anything, any appetite that we have or any impulse that we have right. to, to, you know, undertake a particular action. And those things are explicitly evil, some of them that I mentioned. Um, but I mean, at, at the same, like just to turn it on myself, I have, I have an appetite for solitude or for, for being alone that actually goes beyond what my need for solitude is. Mm-hmm. So like, I'd be happy to just sit and watch 40 hours of Netflix every week. Yeah. And then what happens to your kids? Yeah. My kids, yeah. my school, my relationships, totally. My body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of working out to maintain the eight pack that I have. Yeah, <laughs> I've watched you work out, work out and uh, I can't keep up. Well, no, I mean, so. it's, it's what, three, four hours a day that I spend on my, <laughs> on my body. For those of you who don't know me, that is complete facetious garbageness. But I wouldn't say it's far off. <laughs> in the grand, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not, but, but I, I digress. Okay. We digress. But I like what you're saying here because so not everything is spiritual, but that doesn't mean that everything is spiritual in a good way. Correct. But everything has the potential to be spiritual in a good way. Yeah. And I, and again, Lewis in this essay points out that everything you do, if it's offered to God, if it's done to the glory of God, uh, and, and, or another way he puts that is 
if it's helping you advance, helping you advance towards God, towards uh, his knowledge or knowledge of him or towards his beauty, or if it's helping other people advance to the knowledge of God or to seeing God's beauty, then it's, um, then it's worth doing. Then it's the spiritual of the good kind that you should be doing. Which is maybe why he says in the membership essay that not all are of equal value. Meaning, are they helping you advance towards becoming um, like God or advancing towards the knowledge of him, towards the beauty of him? Then it's of, then it's of good spiritual value. Then you're helping yourself become a heavenly creature or you're helping others become heavenly creatures. But the opposite could be true. It could be spiritual in the way that you're spiritually affecting people in becoming hellish creatures, or you're spiritually affecting yourself by what you're doing in advancing away from God's knowledge of God, knowledge of God and the beauty of God. You're advancing towards becoming a hellish creature. And if that's the case, then at that moment, what's your value? Your value would be a negative value. So everyone has the potential to be on a trajectory of becoming a heavenly creature, but not everyone is on that trajectory at this very moment. And so not all are of the same value. Not all are headed towards the one from whom they derive their value. Some of them are heading in the opposite direction. And especially not everyone is equally valuable in helping people make that journey towards the knowledge of God or of the beauty of God. All could be, but not everyone is right now. And so some are actually helping people advance in the opposite direction. And the weight of glory will cover that better when we get there, which I'm just so excited for that essay. Man, you're just you're just teasing you're teasing the weight of glory so much. I can't I can't wait. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. So it's my favorite. And he talks about that in, in this essay a little bit too. Um, Lewis says, um, quote, I reject at once an idea which lingers in the minds of some modern people that cultural activities are in their own right spiritual and, and, uh, and meritorious, as though scholars and poets were intrinsically more pleasing mm-hmm. to God than scavengers and boot blacks, which is just so poetic and beautiful, the cadence of that. Yeah. But also says that, you know, this thing of advancing toward God, whether you're becoming more heavenly or hellish, as you just mentioned, is, is fiercely personal and according to capacity. It's not that more intelligent or, or more creative people are, are more valuable. Like you said, it is about the, the orientation of people to their creator and redeemer. Yeah. Let me keep reading from that quote you just read, because uh, I like the next part. He says, he says, the work of a Beethoven and the work of a, a charwoman, which I think is just a maid of some kind, uh, they become spiritual on precisely the same condition. So both Beethoven and just a house cleaner become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. And then he says, a mole must dig to the glory of God and a rooster must crow. We are members of one body, but differentiated members, each with his own vacation. Sorry, (laughs) each with his own vocation. Which is where it comes back to the membership or ties back to that membership essay.
If, if I was reading this through the eyes of an 18-year-old, which is, you know, what I, I interpret as much of the world as possible because that's the age of our freshman students here. Yeah. Um, I interpret most of the world that way too, but only because <laughs> of like arrested psychological development. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, but his whole discussion on vocation here, again, is something that I, I would like to go into deeper. We, we talked a little bit about theology of work a few minutes ago, but... but that whole thing about a mole and a rooster, um, and, and, and he unpacks it quite a bit in, in sections that I'm sure we don't have time to read through. He really argues for people kind of staying in their lanes. He really argues mm, for people mm-hmm. um, trying to essentially, like he even talks about like, if your parents sent you to Oxford, you're meant to be an intellectual, just be one, kind yep. of. Um you know, he says, uh, quote, a man's upbringing, his talents, his circumstances are usually a tolerable index of his vocation. Yeah. And I wanted, I want you to, I'm going to ask you this question is just a second, Jordan, if, if you think that's true and if so, how, because I did feel like that bruised my existentialism just a little bit, mm. um, that in a, in a self-deterministic world, we don't like to be told that, you know, our, our skills or our gifts is actually a biblical, you know, our, that our gifts will quote, make room for us, which is, uh, I believe in, in the Proverbs, um, that a man's, a, a person's gifts make room for them. And I just thought about these examples from the, from the gospels, you know, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus who may have inherited that wealth, but maybe presumably is actually just a, a really, um, sharp businessman. Jesus says, give it all up and follow me. And so he yeah. calls for that, that 180 degree turn, but, and I think about the, the disciples as well. You know, it would make more sense for Nicodemus as a Pharisee, an educated Pharisee, to be one of Jesus's original 12, but instead he picked uneducated fishermen. And, you know, there's, there's more examples that, that we can probably cherry pick through scripture. And Paul is maybe an example of the opposite of that, where Paul is so well educated. So I'm not saying that Jesus always is just going to flip your, your career, which I think is, is a false notion that a lot of people have. Um, but, but what would you, what would you say about all that? I mean, in response to that, I would say that is true. Jesus may flip your career, but I would also say that, I mean, perhaps each person should remain in the condition in which that they were called. So let's say you were a slave when you were called, Uh, don't be worried about it. If you can get free, then take the opportunity, but uh, so I'm being a little facetious because I'm paraphrasing from First Corinthians chapter seven. You're 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 doing a beautiful job. Thanks. thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing a beautiful <laughs> job of of sounding just like Paul. Yeah. Good. Um. Yeah. So Paul's in First Corinthians chapter seven. He's he's telling people who are, who I mean, some of them were leaving their spouses because they went. Well, I'm a Christian now, so I got to leave this person. Um. But he says even to slaves. If you were a slave when, when Christ called you into his kingdom, don't be worried about it because he says, actually, you're a, you're a slave. Every slave is free in the Lord. But likewise, if you were free when you were called, you're actually a uh-huh. slave to Christ. So he kind of flips it back and forth. Um, but he, he finishes in verse 24. He says, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain this is the important part with God. Huh. So what, where are you right now? It doesn't matter what you're doing. So for me, let's talk about an existential crisis. I went, I felt the calling to go to Bible school straight out of high school. 
I a hundred percent believe God called me there. I, I, every single year I had an encounter with the Lord where he told me to come back another year until I was done all four years. And I got my bachelor's of biblical studies at Eston college. I recommend it go there. Thank you. But yeah, you're welcome. And then from there, I felt the Lord say that I was supposed to do a master's degree. And, but then he, before I got the opportunity to do a master's degree, he called me to um, a various different ministries for about, uh, I think, eight years, six years or something. And then he called me away to do this Master's of Divinity. So I've done all those things. Now I paint plywood. Right. And I'm going, <laughs> I'm trying to match those things up. And I go, Lord, you called me to do this education. Uh, what was it for? But at the moment, what I'm trying to do is lean into these verses that say things like, in whatever condition you're in, be there with God. So I'm really trying, while I'm at work, I'm trying not just to be there at work making money, being like, well, this doesn't matter. It's just painting. I wasn't, you know, God called me to be an academic or a teacher or a pastor. This isn't my vocation. Well, it is my vocation. That's literally my job. Yeah. So, and it reminds me of something I heard recently. Um, someone was talking about like, you know, in dating, is there the one, is there the one out there? The only woman who is the one for me would be the one. Well, no. Uh, how do you say this? No, almost the one that you marry becomes the one by virtue of the fact that you're married to her or him. Yeah. Yeah. She is the one. Yeah. So after marriage, you can't go, ah, did I marry the right one? Yeah. Yes, you did. Because she's the right one because you're married to her. Yes. Right? Yes. So I know that my job right now to paint plywood is what God's calling me to do because it's the job I have. So now there's a question of how does how do you discern when God's calling you into a different job? That's a different thing. That is a thing. And it's <laughs> it's a different thing. It happens and you need different tools of discernment for that. Yeah, it, it is a different thing. Um, and, and in fact, I think that that's that different thing of discerning, should I stay or should I go, uh, is, is, is really where learning in wartime starts off. Oh, yeah. For, that's interesting. Uh, and, I, and I feel like it, you know, Lewis really makes the argument that um, if we were to just chase you know, the urgent or in, in, and, and maybe it wasn't, maybe it's not the urgent, um, always like that's what he's talking about. Certainly. But let's just say that you're always jumping from one lucrative job to a more lucrative job even. Um, but any, any of, of that kind of change of, and, and again, like you said, it could be relationships too, but any of those changes of directions need to be undertaken, um, with a, like a really particular awareness of where God is moving, um, and how he has set you up. Um, you know, he says, he talks about it kind of as the, as the essay draws to a conclusion, um, not letting your, your emotions lead you into thinking that your present predicament is abnormal. Right. And, and therefore, because it's abnormal, I need to take drastic action. So in other words, I think using modern leadership language, he would say, you want to be, you don't want to be reactionary to what's going on around you. Yeah, that's good. One thing I love that he says in this area about discernment and discerning 
I don't know, calling or vocation or what you're supposed to be doing. He says, we all have appetites for knowledge and for beauty and that God makes no appetite in vain. Basically, we all have desires um, to know things. We have areas of interest that areas that pique our interest in knowledge. We have areas in beauty that pique our interest. For me, that's, I love hiking. That's, that's what draws me um, when it comes to beauty. I have, I have obviously this podcast is something that was born out of my desire to know more of the writings of C.S. Lewis. And I got, we're doing this podcast because I said yes to that appetite to know more about C.S. Lewis. And so the next thing he says is, he basically gives like a criteria. He says, would it help advance you towards the vision of God or indirectly help other people to get there? And so that's a great question for discernment of what you should be doing with your life. One, do you have an appetite for, what are your appetites for knowledge? What are your desires to know about things? Is it cars and mechanics? Like that, that actually might be a good and godly desire to know that. Yes. When, when combined with the thing that you said before of like, can I do this to the glory of God? Or is this about me just having a flashy machine? Right. Those are two yeah. totally different things, even though the outward, yeah. the outward career can look the same. Yeah, because he also says, um, he says, now as a caveat, basically, if you're going to be a scholar and love knowledge, you can't love knowledge more than the thing known. Oh, so good. And then he says about like, he says basically about artists um, that you can't love or you shouldn't love the exercise of your talents or the reputation that they bring you rather you should just simply delight that these are your talents. And again, if you want a great illustration of what happens, if you are a scholar who loves knowledge more than the thing known or an artist who loves your own art more than just delighting in being creative, read the great divorce. Um, there's two characters in there, the artist, And I think the Episcopal Bishop is the other one who kind of embody what that looks like. But one more thing, let me pull in one more thing from, uh, more well-known Lewis, uh, (laughs) books, (laughs) screw tape. Um, have we talked about screw tape on this podcast yet? Uh, I don't know if we have. Okay. I have a feeling we might bring in some more or I might anyway. So screw tape letters is C.S. Lewis writing, pretending he's a senior demon writing advice, demonic advice to a junior demon about how he can, you know, tempt and lead astray his assigned human. Um, and in the 13th letter of, um, the screw tape letters, he, the senior demon tells the junior one, he says, I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient, the human, any strong personal tastes, which is not actually a sin. Even if it's something quite trivial, such as a fondness for um, a fondness for country or cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa. <sighs> and then he, and then he says, you should always try to make the patient, the human abandon the people or food or books. He really likes in favor of the quote unquote best people or the quote unquote right food or the quote unquote important books. 
Oh, Jordan, I feel like we could do a whole nother episode on that quote alone. It is so good. It, it affirms in me that maybe the things I like are things God wants me to like, as long as those things aren't sinful in, in and of themselves. Well, which ties to two other things. So from the midpoint of our conversation, just talking about the, is everything spiritual? And, and you know, there are some mm, things that are explicitly mm-hmm. negatively spiritual, but at the very beginning, you know, you saying, um, you know, why, why would I continue to be the, the president of a Bible college? Um, mm-hmm. and, and me kind of talking about discipleship and how, when I think about, um, how, how much safer it is, so to speak, and, and by safer, I mean, how much more safe we are from self-deception about our appetites and our likes when we actually know Jesus as he's revealed through the Bible, he gives yeah. us just like tremendous liberty. But the liberties that we would assume that we can take are not always the same ones that he gives us. Mm, mm-hmm. So, you know, one person hearing what you just said, like, oh man, I should do what I like, is going gonna, is gonna to go in a completely different direction than somebody who's, who has actually been, say, you know, knows, knows scripture really well, um, uh, knows Jesus really intimately. But they've been living under this this oppressive burden of thinking that they you know they ought to live a particular way. They're suppressing all of their all of their appetites because they think those appetites are fundamentally bad. Well, how much freedom does it bring to that person to say, "Oh no, 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 God's working in your appetites. He gave them to yeah. you. You know, you already have a sweet and good heart. Um, oh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." You know, maybe, maybe we, when we are pure in heart, we begin to see God in our appetites and in our actions and in the, the mundane daily actions around us. You know, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God in the most important moments or in, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets mm. or in, in, you know, Theology for the Community of God by Stanley Grenz. He says, <laughs> he says, they will see God. And, and I think that the opening up of our eyes to God and the purity of heart that comes with that is exactly what you and Lewis are talking about here, um, which is just sanctified appetites. sermon <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> having gone on that little rant um i i would like to just spend a couple minutes at the end here of uh, of saying you know lewis gives us a few um a few pointers i would say some some scholarly coaching uh on how we can avoid the trap of getting sucked into the urgent and letting our nerves as he would say or our emotions get the best of us um and, and so he, he talks about the true enemies of um, just kind of the goodness of daily work. Okay, so I'm going to run through them real quick and, and Lewis's response to them. And, and Jordan, I just want to hear what, what you would draw out of this. Okay. So Lewis says that the first enemy is excitement or the tendency to think and feel about the war or about COVID or whatever it might be. Um, when what we should be doing is thinking about the work that's in front of us. Um, so distraction, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, Procrastination. And, and procrastination. Exactly. And he says that the best, the best defense against that excitement is, um, is the recognition that, uh, again, the war or whatever, whatever the crisis might be, um, has not raised up a new enemy, but has just aggravated an old one that that distraction is always there. Then he talks about the second enemy being frustration. Uh, you know, like, like we're not going to have time to, to get through all that we need to do. We're going to be interrupted by more lockdowns or we're going to be interrupted by nuclear war coming out of Russia or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I shouldn't even start. And, and you kind of, and, and so he says the antidote to the antidote to that is leaving the future in God's hands um, and not, not committing your happiness to what might happen in the future, but saying, God, whatever you want to do is fine. And then the third enemy he talks about is, is fear, whether that be fear of, of pain, suffering, loss, whatever it might be. Um, and, and he gives um, kind of an, an answer to that as well, where he says, um, we, can, we can guard against um, fear by kind of renovating our imagination. Hmm. Uh, so again, I just want to hear, what did you think about those three enemies that he discusses and, and the solutions um, that he proposes to each of them as well? Yeah, well, I feel like I, I relate with all three of those enemies. The first one, what was so helpful for me um, against excitement, he calls it, or procrastination or distraction by COVID or the news cycle or a war or, <laughs> for me, Netflix, um, yeah. which seems so much more pathetic when he's like, don't be distracted by the World War II. And I'm like, I'm just <laughs> distracted by the new episode of Drive to Survive. <laughs> I don't know if you've watched it, but we'll talk about it later. Um, he says, favorable conditions never come. Yeah. And I am always looking for when I'm at my best to sit down and write something or at my best or when I feel like reading a good book, I'll sit down and read a good book. Those favorable conditions aren't going to come. I'm going to get interruptions. I'm going to get distractions. Put them aside do the work that God's given me to do. Um, the second enemy frustration over specifically feeling like you might not get to finish. Cause um, what's the point if Vladimir Putin has access to nuclear bombs? Um, yeah. Leave it with presentness, leaving the future in God's hands. He gives some really good advice in that paragraph, uh, which I think young people, well, I need to hear, but uh, young people especially need to hear this. So listen up if you are younger than me. I'm 32. Um, he says, you would be surprised if you knew how soon one begins to feel the shortness of the tether, basically of life, how short life is. How many things, even in middle life, and I'm barely at middle life and I can affirm this is true. How many things we have to say, no time for that, too late now, and not for me. Oh, I'm haunted. That's so, that's just so true. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just keep reading Lewis's quotes for this one. Cause he's, he's got some good stuff to say here. He says, never commit your virtue. So becoming more holy and like Jesus or your happiness to the future. Um, just do it now. Get on with that. Now what's important do it now. He says, happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread 
that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. I think if I had to say there was one lesson I've learned in the last two or three years, it would be that is, is presentness and not in the new agey, um, like yoga sense, but presentness that brings you to the Lord. The tr- th- maybe the thought that God was in my past and God will be in my future, but the only place I can relate with the Lord is right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a real tendency to, to escape into my future, not intentionally, but just that's just how I'm built is I think about the future a lot. And that's, that's an asset to me in lots of mm-hmm. roles and responsibilities that I've had. But I think that what you just said about where it's like, oh, but I, I can't actually enjoy the Lord a week from now. Yep. I can only enjoy him now. And I guess the thing that stands out for me for the last one, the, the enemy, um, the fear of, of pain or death. The thing about war is that it causes us to remember death. Uh-huh. That's why war is scary. We are, we are just as likely to die later as we are to die in war. Like 100% of us die is his point. Yeah, I really liked that. That was an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and so he says like, well, war might bring us soon, uh, it might bring death sooner. And he's basically like, well, sooner than what? Like once you die, you're not going to think, you're not going to be thinking about, oh, I died too soon, shoot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he also says it's not going to bring a more painful death. It's actually, war is one of the things that will likely uh, give you that immediate death with less pain, you know? Yeah, ironically, yeah. I, I guess with the fear of death thing, he he points out something that, again, he he puts in screw tape letter five, where the the senior demon writes to the junior demon and says, don't, don't think that war, this war going on is all good for us, for the demonic. He says, sometimes the deaths that occur in wartime are undesirable to us because, uh, war brings about a preparedness in people. So war reminds people that death is, could be imminent. No, death is always imminent. And war just reminds us of that truth and then probably leads some more people to prepare for their deaths, which is what Christians are always supposed to be doing. Yes. Yes. Um, The earliest Christians, C.S. Lewis writes, they thought it good for us to always be aware of our mortality. And the reason for that is because Lewis says, all our desires, our plans for happiness that are centered in this world, he's, he basically says they were always doomed to fail and disappoint and frustrate us anyway. So he says, this is the quote, in ordinary times, only a, man, a wise man can realize this. Now in war, the, stupid of us, the stupidest of us knows. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with this with it. And, and I feel like that's, what's made COVID maybe harder, at least the first year of COVID. Yeah. Um, I know that, you know, opinions kind of shifted in the second year to people saying like, Oh, this isn't actually that uh, severe of a disease, you know, different things like that came up. But, 
but where people said, where people realized, man, like our supply lines are so fragile yeah. or, oh, our institutions are so fragile or, oh, there's like a lot of anger bubbling under the surface or, oh, our bodies are, are really vulnerable. And, and there was just all of this, so much that was taken for granted that all of a sudden wasn't granted. And we, we had to come to terms with the type of universe we were living in, mm-hmm. which through most of human history, uh, people just lived there. And, and you know, so much of our, our denial of our own mortality, the opposite of what Lewis was saying, um, was taking place. And all of a sudden it confronted us and, and people didn't like it. Or not only, not only our own mortality, but the, um, the non-eternal nature of our countries. Yeah. You know, I, I, I suggested to somebody one time on the 4th of July that, um, you know, there would be a day when something called the United States of America won't exist anymore. Yep. And just deeply offended them. <laughs> and I said, I'm not talking about right away. Like yeah. it'll probably be hundreds of years. And they're like, no, this will always stand. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, you know, and I, maybe it's a little more pronounced in Americans, but I, uh, that I've met anyway in my own experience, but I would say that same mentality is, is definitely in Canadian culture right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they used to say the sun never sets on the British empire and yet I'm pretty sure, I think it was just this week, a couple of more smaller, like Jamaica or I don't know, some Caribbean, uh, what do you call them? Parts of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Like took their independence. Like it just keeps the sorry, The sun is setting on the British empire. Yeah. Very much so. So yeah, I just, in the conclusion of this, I, I take away these parts. He says, don't wait for favorable conditions to do the things that God's asking you to do, or just look at your, you know, look at the present state of your life. What do you got to do tomorrow? Don't put it off and then leave the future to God's hands. Be in the present with him. And specifically because of your mortality, like remember your death. I love it. And and I think that's, that's honestly just a great place to, to wrap up and to say to people, uh, if you want to, want to hear the words right out of Lewis's mouth. Uh, you can find learning in wartime in, in print on, online. You could just, uh, uh, so not really out of his mouth, but you get the point, <laughs> not his mouth, but if you, <laughs> if you want, you can find a couple of great audio uh, recordings of it. So yeah, not, not out of Lewis's mouth. That's true. <laughs> we know what you meant. Uh, I, you know what? I don't know that everybody did. So I'm glad that you clarified that. That's good. Um, yeah, that's what I'm here for, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I recommend it. It is uh, as as relevant today as it was in the autumn of 1939. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on this text. If you want to join us in making these works of C.S. Lewis more well-known, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a comment and a rating to help get the word out to other listeners. If you have your own thoughts or questions from this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us a message at lesserknownlewis at gmail.com and we'll get back to you.